Well, hello everyone. Excuse me, I just uh, lost uh, my voice a little bit there. Uh, hello everyone. Uh, this is Data Driven Formula One, and as usual, Patrick Hansen got a Grabna here. Um, hi, hello. Patrick. Um, yeah, and we are talking about Lorenzo Bandini. Um, so, if you watched the 1966 season, that's the guy we talked a lot about, and uh, today we will talk about him in depth. Exactly, he was uh, um, maybe a little bit similar to Kraftberge um, uh, von Tripsa, a, loc a real uh, local hero, which had the talent, but uh, unfortunately uh, first died uh, uh, too early, uh, and second never uh, had the chance to really uh, win the championship, even if they had been uh, close uh, to do so. Yeah, so that's him, and um, as you can yeah. see, he lived a very short life. And I have to say that in preparation for this, it was very difficult to find his pictures. I found, yeah, but uh, found some very nice ones. I found, uh, yeah, just a handful of pictures. So it was very difficult to find his portraits. So normally, the majority of pictures that you will find of him are in a car, or I mean, even here, you can see like this is a pretty good shot of him. Uh, if you're watching us on YouTube, uh, it's a pretty good shot of him uh, and quite close, but still this is like uh, him uh, getting off the plane and there are some people in the background who are also quite close. So yeah, mostly it's, um, you know, mostly you will see uh, Lorenzo Bandini driving a Ferrari car and uh, that's um, that's how it is and uh, in the majority of pictures uh, that's how he is uh, captured. Yeah, I think he was also a more introvert uh, character. He's always... Well I think at all it is a combination right because uh, he it, it not only well the introversion but also the fact that uh, he had a very short life and uh, yeah. very short life in sport for uh, Right. For the reasons that we are going to basically convey in today's uh, in, in 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 today's episode, but um, yeah, effectively, just there is just not you know if you, if he had a career like Sterling Moss or Graham Hill, of course you would have had many pictures, uh, but unfortunately, yeah, his uh, his life uh, was short, okay. his life in Formula One was short as well. Exactly, and as you described, most of his photos uh, had been uh, him sitting uh, in the car. On the right, uh, you see uh, a photo which I took at the uh, Museo Ferrari in uh, Maranello. And uh, interesting to me, they have uh, one room where they have their championship uh, cars. And uh, here they had uh, the car uh, from the uh, successful 96, um, sorry, 1964 season. And uh, quite interesting, uh, if you look at it, it's the number eight car. So it was uh, the car driven uh, by Lorenzo Bandini and not the one which was driven by John Soltis. Um, I don't know, and maybe I'm a little bit over interpreting um, it, uh, as we know, especially if you have listened to our 1966 season. John uh, Soltis uh, left uh, Ferrari. Um, he quit uh, from Ferrari after the uh, decision uh, of the team that he was needed uh, uh, to start at Le Mans. So uh, they didn't uh, left in friendship to say it that way. 
And I don't know if this um, triggered the company's decision not to show the, the uh, Sortis car of the 64 season, but the one from the number two driver, which was Lorenzo Bandini at that time. Well, I mean, I think it probably also, also has to do with the fact um, that you pro pro previously <clears throat> talked about, uh, Patrick, that Yes. Uh, Ferrari tended to sort of rework their cars. Uh, yes. Some of them do not exist anymore. So in a sense, uh, you know, they, and we know that 1966 in particular was very difficult year. So maybe also, you know, there were some financial reasons why one car, only one car survived in the end. That's correct, but let's say uh, they could have easily changed the numbers from the eight, uh, maybe to the seven or which number John Sorti said. I mean, nobody would have recognized that. But they left the eight, which was known as the number for Lorenzo Bandini. Yes, indeed. So, um, but I mean, let's all have a look at his, uh, maybe brief over overview of his, uh, um, yeah, of his profile. And um, yeah, as you can see, uh, he basically was uh, born in Bars. Uh, and uh, yeah, drove for Scuderia Centro Zut and uh, Scuderia Ferrari. And yeah, uh, he, he died in 1967. Uh, as you probably guessed, uh, it was uh, a racing accident uh, that uh, he died, where he died. In fact, he died during uh, 1967 uh, Monaco Grand Prix. Mm -hmm. And uh, we even have a picture from that race. Mm -hmm. So just a few minutes before, effectively, before his death. Uh, exactly. Interesting uh, fun fact. Uh, he was Italian, uh, but not born on the Italian mainland, but in uh, Libya, which had been an Italian uh, colony in 1935. Uh, we had one other uh, Italian uh, slash uh, US driver who also had been uh, had been born in uh, an Italian colony, not on the uh, Italian mainland, who uh, which uh, should become quite famous uh, later, which was uh, Mario Andretti, of course. So just uh, this as a fun fact. Yes. So um, so yeah. I mean, he was um, uh, indeed uh, born in uh, in Libya, which. Uh, um, at the time was Italian colony in 1935, sorry, just uh, before the Second World War. And, um, you know, his, uh, his father passed away when he was uh, a teenager, basically he was 15 when that, had, when that happened. And uh, for that reason, uh, Lorenzo Bandini ended up in a, in, a, in a workshop working as a mechanic. And he was working there from a very, very young age. So effectively at 15, he became uh, the person responsible for, for the family. And uh, he had to earn money. And uh, for that reason, he learned uh, a lot about cars. And, uh, you know, was spending all his time, obviously, in, in the garage. Exactly. And um, just to add, uh, his father was not only just uh, passed away, he, uh, uh, he was uh, killed in the war. So also a violent death. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, sorry. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, he, he, uh, he was uh, basically killed uh, 
in uh, in combat we can say that uh, yeah and um, uh, this was quite a, i guess a, uh, tragically uh, a very standard situation back in the day. Uh, I can tell you that my grandfather had very similar <laughs> biography <laughs> because his, yeah. his dad uh, was killed in, uh, in, in war when he was 16 and he had to, my, my grandfather also had to provide for the entire family and he had a large uh, family with uh, I think uh, seven uh, siblings uh, so it was uh, quite a standard story for war children, children of war. Exactly, and uh, maybe you uh, may conclude this is one of the reasons why, uh, let's say, fans and society accepted uh, that uh, each year so many uh, young men died in uh, motorsports as it was quite normal, as the family still had remembered uh, World War II, World War I, where it was unfortunately normal that uh, people got uh, killed. You may uh, argue that today in 2020 uh, society would not accept a sport where each year two, three people uh, would die, statistically. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, so yeah, in terms of career, I mean, uh, we've already discussed the several drivers who, sp who started in uh, motorcycling and uh, Lorenzo Bandini was not an exception in that sense so he also started with uh, motorcycles and uh, eventually he uh, he managed to borrow a Fiat, <laughs> Fiat car for racing um, yeah. and uh, well obviously through his work uh, in, in this yeah, workshop. I think it was the car by his boss uh, of uh, Mr. Freddy Exactly. And, uh, you know, uh, because he was quite uh, good at, at this, he had a very good, uh, you know, he, he was, uh, he had a, quite a remarkable driving talent. He was yes. spotted uh, by, by Fiat and, uh, you know, uh, essentially they started to promote his talent, uh, which is why eventually he ended up in Scuderia uh, and uh, then in Ferrari yep. team. Yeah. Yep. And uh, uh, to add, uh, Mr. Goliardo Freddy uh, not only gave him uh, his uh, fiat, but also later his uh, daughter. He uh, he married uh, Margarita um, uh, Freddy in 1963. So uh, he, I mean, he seemed to, to be a very uh, down-to-earth person. He uh, young uh, entered in in this uh, workshop, worked his way up there. Uh, started to have a good relation with his manager, the owner, and also uh, stay together with um, his daughter. Yeah, so, but I was just, just going uh, just gonna to say that probably not necessarily in that order, you know, Kaka <laughs> and, then, and then daughter, <laughs> but daughter, daughter probably had some say in this as well. <laughs> I hope so, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so in, in, indeed, so he married uh, Margarita. Yeah. Uh, in 1963 and uh, yeah so it was uh, also actually you know there are some pictures that you can find of the couple even though there are not many photos that you can find generally but you know you can see that uh, definitely two very happy yeah. people in these pictures so um, uh, yeah I mean uh, I think it's it was kind of for Freddy it was uh, um, he was like a son, I guess. So that's part of the family. And uh, 
you know, uh, yeah. So he, the, the fact that, uh, you know, uh, uh, Lorenzo Bandini spent uh, so much time working in the, in, in the workshop uh, actually um, helped him to make, to make <laughs> these connections and eventually, uh, um, yeah, helped his career in motorsport. For better yeah. or worse, because, yeah, I mean, considering his early death, uh, we don't know how, you know, his life could have gone had he not spent that much time with cars. Yeah. Uh, now we are in 96 and uh, at that time we had also something like a, a junior uh, program. We, uh, as we discussed in our episode about 1968, uh, we had uh, Giancarlo Baghetti uh, driving a Ferrari as practically um, sponsored not, not directly by Ferrari, but uh, by some Italian organizations as part of a development uh, program. At that time, it was uh, between uh, Baghetti and um, uh, Bandini. Uh, and Bandini not got the seat. That's why he uh, decided to start with the uh, Scuderia uh, Centro Sud at that time. Uh, another topic which we not touched in our episodes, it's a little bit related to uh, Formula One. Uh, we had a quite interesting uh, series and we will come to this a little bit later in our today's uh, episode where uh, where mostly um, old uh, Formula One cars had been adapted and there had been races in New Zealand and in Australia. So uh, a lot of the teams and also uh, a lot of the well-known drivers uh, used the winter time to get uh, some uh, additional experience and of course uh, additional income uh, to drive in this Tasman uh, series. Same was also um, done uh, by uh, Lorenzo Bandini. Uh, I, I'm honestly, I'm not found information uh, which cars uh, he drove there in, uh, in New Zealand and uh, uh, Australia. Maybe it was something like that one. We see here uh, an older Ferrari mo sorry, model. It had originally a six-cylinder engine, but to make it competitive for the Tasman series, the Ferrari team entered the 12-cylinder engine, which they had been used, for example, for the famous Testarossa. So this kind of cars had been active and here also uh, young uh, Lorenzo was uh, driving. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, uh, kind of going back to um, 1961, I mean, this was when he drove his first uh, world championship um, race in a spa. Uh, mm. Didn't go well for him because it was a mechanical failure and he had to retire. Yeah. But nevertheless, uh, this, is, uh, this was the year uh, when he had his debut in, uh, uh, yeah, in, in uh, Formula One racing, in World Championship racing. Yeah. If you are just uh, watching us now on uh, YouTube, uh, you see a photo. So this is the uh, mentioned uh, Ferrari from 1964, the car with the number eight, the car which is now uh, in the Ferrari Museum. At least yeah. if we consider that the car in the museum is an uh, original car and not a replica, as some of the, these cars 
not uh, exist in originals anymore. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, well, hopefully, hopefully it is there. Uh, yeah. yeah. So what you see is the real thing. Yeah. So we actually talked a lot about um, the um, um, yeah the, the the participation of uh, of Ferrari uh, in Le Mans. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, in, uh, in in general, and uh, uh, you know, uh, Lorenzo Bandini was uh, quite successful there. I mean, he basically won Le Mans in 1964, and um, yeah, so this was sort of another uh, another point for him to kind of be recognized better by the Ferrari team, and uh, yeah, so. Uh, he was basically at that time uh, racing, uh, did some of these occasional races for Scuderia Centro Zut. But uh, obviously, I mean, uh, after, after, after this win, uh, he was uh, already properly spotted, you can say that, by, by Ferrari team. Yeah. That, that's correct. And as we discussed uh, various times at uh, 1960s, 1950s, it was still quite normal that drivers not only drove um, the single seaters in like Formula One, but also had been active in the endurance races like uh, Le Mans, but also in the uh, traditional races like uh, Millimedia or the Targa Florio. So they have been quite uh, util, they not have been just uh, specialized on one type of car, but uh, had been fast uh, also on other kind of cars. And this uh, has been valid, I think, for most of the drivers at that time. Okay, yes. Um, um, yeah, so 1964, which was a very good season for him, right? And uh, that was the first. Um, so he won the Austrian Grand Prix. And in fact, uh, the previous car, the previous picture that you saw that we just showed you was actually taken in Austria <laughs> in a, in a yeah. Ferrari car. Yeah, and um, yeah, so um, uh, so effectively, Bandini, uh, um, uh, he was running second uh, in the season. Um, and uh, um, yeah, uh, he was, uh, he also supported, I think it's, we, I guess we, don't, we do not know, but we, we can guess that this were team orders when he let his teammate John Surtis bypass him in Mexico in 1964. Yeah, uh, and, I was uh, so, yeah. and that was, pro well, like when we discussed 1964, if you haven't seen that episode, do go back and see it. Uh, and there we explained that it was very, very tight season. It was uh, basically a three-way tie between uh, um, Jim Clark, uh, Graham Hill, and uh, John Surtis. And in the end, uh, because John Surtis won that Mexican Grand Prix, he actually won uh, the whole championship. And uh, yeah, in that sense, uh, the fact that Lorenzo Bandini was supporting, supporting his teammate uh, played, this played a very important role in that particular season. And uh, largely due to this uh, collaboration, uh, John Surtis was able to score. Exactly. Uh, nine points for the first place. Yeah, that good, uh, good teamwork here by uh, Bandini, uh, who uh, helped John Sotis uh, 
of course, he, he himself couldn't win the championship, but nevertheless, a good uh, teamwork uh, by Bandini here. Again, we are leaving uh, Formula One uh, in 1965. Uh, Bandini also participated again in, the, in Sicily uh, at the Targa Florio. And here we have a very nice city where we see really these Ferrari uh, prototypes uh, driving through these medieval streets. Uh, quite fascinating um, uh, race event. For the case you have uh, Amazon uh, Prime, there's one uh, documentary about the Targa uh, Florio, which is quite uh, interesting to see, to see the spirit, the atmosphere of these races. Yeah, so we, we discussed a lot um, uh, these uh, street races before. So we, we talked about them and we were saying that, oh, you know, uh, they, were, they were not very safe uh, and for that reason, uh, you know, we actually had uh, many, many of such events cancelled uh, in previous years and um, uh, I, I quite like, uh, again, if you're watching us on YouTube, uh, you can see the, the picture that we have and how exactly the audience was separated from the cast. It was just basically some... Um, uh, yeah, so almost non-existent barriers uh, in a sense. Uh, so it was still very dangerous for the audience <laughs> yes. when we went to these uh, street races, uh, street races, and uh, you know, so highly dangerous. And uh, this is why we had quite a few incidents where uh, members of the public were hurt during uh, such street racing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, 1966. Uh, as uh, you hopefully have listened to our 1966 uh, episode, uh, John Sotis uh, left uh, Ferrari after just two races and Bandini was promoted uh, to be the number one uh, driver. Uh, he, he didn't uh, deliver uh, that positive results, but we have to uh, see that uh, he was a little bit unlucky. Well, he was a lot of a lot unlucky because he was leading the French and the US Grand Prix and then uh, had to retire due to technical uh, problems. Uh, furthermore, uh, we uh, Ferrari couldn't uh, participate at uh, two of the races because we had the strikes of the metal workers in Italy and due to this uh, uh, Ferrari uh, lost uh, two opportunities to participate in the championship. And uh, we will come back to this a little bit uh, later when we play around uh, with the numbers then we ask ourselves what could have happened if uh, he wouldn't have had the technical problems. Also in the 66, uh, Bandini was uh, pretty much involved into the uh, movie project uh, Grand Prix, a US um, production to show uh, Formula One. Uh, he was there uh, one uh, on the one side, he was uh, like the uh, he was doubling one of the actors. Uh, so he he had been inside the car if the fictive Italian driver was to, to see in the race scenes in the movie, and also he uh, was like a consultant. And uh, one thing he did in the 1966 uh, Monaco Grand Prix, he counselled uh, the film crew where at which part of the track 
uh, they could, uh, they would have the accident which should happen in that uh, movie. It's a little bit uh, well, tragic um, to say it that way because it was the pretty much the same uh, part of the Monaco Grand Prix where Bandini really would uh, die already one year later in the 67 Grand Prix. That's right. And um, also he won uh, the uh, 1000 uh, Monza, 1000 yes. kilometer Monza and the 24 hour in Day Daytona uh, races. So um, again, uh, so I think, uh, you know, we can say that he was very good on this endurance races, uh, probably not as lucky in, uh, with the car, I guess, in, in yes. Formula One. Uh, but, you know, when he had to drive kind of long distance, it was very efficient and the one uh, very consistently in uh, in this uh, long long races. Exactly, and uh, uh, due to his uh, success uh, in Formula One and even more in in the endurance races, and maybe also based uh, on his character, he was uh, very much uh, liked and loved by the Italian uh, fans. And so many uh, would consider him as one of the best uh, Italian drivers and uh, many think that he should have won the 1966 uh, season. So uh, I prepared here just, uh, some numbers similar as we did in our episode with uh, Kraft Bergel von Trips. Uh, on the top you see uh, the real uh, results. Important, uh, you see here the points So the first the winner got nine points, the second one six points, then the third four points, then three to one. And uh, also relevant uh, for the championship have been uh, only used the five best uh, results uh, of the year. This also due to the fact that the technology was not that uh, reliable. So we see that uh, Jack Brabham won with a total of uh, 42 points. This is uh, his uh, sixth best uh, result. The fourth place in Belgium uh, have been taken away as he already had five results which have been much uh, better, which has been uh, four victories in uh, France, UK, Netherlands and Germany and the second uh, place in uh, Mexico. Uh, then uh, the second um, matrix uh, showed uh, the numbers if uh, Lorenzo Bandini would have won the two uh, races where he was uh, leading and had to leave because of technical problems. So here we just say that he would have won the French Grand Prix and also the US Grand Prix where he had been leading. If this would have been the, the, the situation and we have to be completely clear. It is uh, it is playing around with numbers because there could have been completely um, other results if you change one uh, variable. The same as the famous uh, butterfly uh, uh, effect. As uh, we have the butterfly in China and in uh, the U.S., the, the weather is changing. So also we would have had uh, this. Uh, uh, effects, of course. So let's say if uh, Bondini would have won these two Grand Prix instead of having the two times zero points, 
uh, we would assume as there had been no result uh, decisions after the US Grand Prix that uh, Ferrari would have traveled uh, to Mexico to the Mexican Grand Prix and also if Bandini would have uh, won the Mexican Grand Prix then he would have had the same uh, score as Jack Brabham and uh, we would have had a tie and in this case uh, both would have been champion. I not included it in the metrics. Let's say we could also change uh, uh, the scenario and be in a parallel scenario where we had not had the strikes in Italy. And uh, you may say that also uh, Lorenzo Bandini could have made points in, uh, in the UK, for example, where he not uh, participated uh, due to the strike and then uh, he could have uh, won uh, um, alone the championship, but of course these are quite, uh, quite big assumptions. Big, big assumptions. Big assumptions. <laughs> Correct. And uh, as as you see, even if he uh, had won France and uh, the US, which is of course uh, quite questionable, then he only would have had a, had a tie with Jack Brabham. So we can. I think we can say that Jack Brabham together with the Brabham car was really the strongest combination. So uh, highly speculative to say what have happened uh, if the Ferrari would have been more reliable. But of course, always uh, interesting. And um, of course, I mean, this makes uh, Formula One interesting also to speculate a little bit what could have happened uh, if he had won that uh, race or what uh, could have happened uh, if one driver not left the team but stayed or not stayed but left to another team. So always the interesting question, what could have happened and uh, uh, if there had been more luck or if people had uh, decided in different ways. Uh, yes, uh, yes, exactly. So, I mean, but uh, I guess the, the, the point is that, yeah, it's, it's possible that like, he could have won, or he could have had a tie with uh, Jack Graham, yeah. but we wouldn't know. <laughs> we we <laughs> for, don't know. For a fact, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, he had the talent, uh, obviously, uh, but uh, it's always the combination of driver, machine, then you have other factors as, uh, as Experience. Uh, strikes experience or you have just uh, the, the strike that you are not even able to, to go to the race. Yeah, so with, uh, we've already kind of touched on this uh, about the uh, Grand Prix. Um, and um, yeah, he was kind of the main consultant for the movie, right? Ex exactly. And uh, again, uh, uh, interesting coincidence that uh, really he advised uh, that this is the, let's say, this is the um, best uh, part of the track to have an accident, maybe it's the most dangerous one, and, uh, to, and then to see that really he would die exactly on this scene. Uh, in this, in combination, as we will see with the quotes, he was uh, similar to Alberto Ascari, also uh, quite uh, superstitious. And he believed in uh, destiny. Yeah. So and uh, yeah, it's kind of coming back to to the same uh, sort of uh, point that sometimes you know uh, when people concentrate on something that that could have a psychological effect on them. So he was really, if he was really thinking about that, 
that particular uh, crash scene could have affected uh, his uh, con consciousness exactly. when he was doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe and, this uh, really affected him while he dro uh, drove this uh, uh, this uh, chicane uh, because. Uh, uh, what happened is uh, in the 82nd lap that he lost the control uh, uh, over his car and uh, maybe because he wasn't that uh, concentrated uh, anymore because he had in, in this idea already back in his mind. So uh, he lost uh, control and uh, crashed and uh, uh, the tragic part uh, here is that uh, he survived uh, the accident uh, itself but unfortunately the car hit uh, straw bales, uh, which together uh, with the fuel and the hot engine started uh, to burn. And so he got uh, injuries that 70% of his skin had been uh, burned. And uh, this was the reason why uh, he died three days uh, later in the hospital. That's right. I mean, uh, in terms of... Um in term, in, in, yeah, you already mentioned that he was uh, this local hero and uh, there was a huge crowd at his funeral. So, right, that was basically like a celebrity, despite the fact that we cannot find many pictures, as we told you. I mean, people knew this guy. I mean, uh, yeah, so it's like 100,000 people came to the funeral, which is an impressive. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so effectively he was much loved by... Uh, uh, Ferrari fans and uh, the, the fact that he was Italian, you know, Italian driver for the team uh, also contributed to this. And uh, generally, he was uh, basically highly accomplished uh, endurance driver, even though in Formula One, it wasn't, you know, he didn't have as much success. Uh, so, and then in, in that sense, you know, he was a local hero and uh, this uh, death came uh, uh, as a shock to, to many, yes. many people in Italy. Yes. And uh, let's say as consequence from the um, from the accident, of course, it was investigated uh, to see if really they the marshals got him out uh, in the time that they should be. Uh, uh, but in, in the relevant consequences that after this, uh, they not used straw belts uh, anymore in Formula One because the risk is. Uh, uh, too high that they uh, start uh, in fire due to fuel, due to the heat of the cars and the engine. Unfortunately, something which uh, uh, organizers found out due to this accident only. Yeah, that's right. And I also wanted to say that, uh, you know, he is buried in Mila Milano, uh, in Milan, mm -hmm. in uh, uh, Lambrate Cemetery. So, yeah, so if you were into sort of finding, uh, like I know in, in France, uh, there, <laughs> there is this tradition that, you know, you go and look for uh, yes. for people's graves, you can actually find his grave in Milano if you, uh, if you are there and you really want to see, uh, to, to see it. Uh, so yeah, and it was a huge, uh, huge deal for many people. It was a very big funeral and uh, uh, well, because like we said, he was a really a local hero and uh, he was known by many people. Yeah. 
So let's uh, see which uh, cars uh, and teams uh, he used uh, while being in uh, Formula One. First season, 1961, uh, with a uh, Cooper Maserati T53, uh, used by the Scuderia Centro Sud. Then, luckily, next year, he switched uh, to the Scuderia, driving the Ferrari 156. Uh, next uh, year, he started with the Scuderia Centro Sud and due to his uh, positive results, got a seat uh, at the Scuderia Ferrari again, where he continued uh, also in the next two years, which included that uh, he drove the last races in the US and Mexico, uh, officially driving for the North America racing team. If uh, you not uh, did so yet, we have a special episode about uh, this particular US Ferrari team. Then 66, continuing with Ferrari uh, until unfortunately his tragic death in 67. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I mean, practically his career was uh, in, in Ferrari, we can say practically exclusively in yes. Ferrari with one uh, small deviation to Cooper. And uh, as we explained before, he was uh, he started in motorbike racing and then was uh, actually racing in this borrowed fiat and this is how he got his uh, sort of he, he got his chance uh, exactly. to race uh, for ferrari and uh, kind of once he got this chance he uh, he kind of was loyal to the team yes and maybe this is also one of the reason why he was uh, so much beloved um, by the people Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's one serious. Yeah, yeah, that's yes. also a very interesting uh, episode. Uh, yes, uh, it's a topic which we uh, not touched, uh, and I thought uh, to use the opportunity to speak about uh, this interesting series, as uh, uh, the cars had been very uh, similar to Formula One. And uh, due to this, a very good opportunity for teams, but also for drivers uh, to spend uh, the winter time driving in New Zealand and in uh, US, uh, sorry, in, in Australia. Uh, it started uh, in 1960 as a series of independent races in Australia and in New Zealand. And then in 64, they uh, combined these races to a real series, which have been active until 1975. So it was active for uh, 11, year, 11 years. Uh, the name comes from the sea, which uh, divides New Zealand and uh, Australia. So the races traditionally started in January uh, to late February or even uh, March. So the time where it is still uh, too cold in uh, uh, Europe and in uh, Northern um, America. So really a good opportunity, uh, especially as we didn't had uh, races on the South American continent uh, anymore, at least in the, <coughs> in the, uh, in the beginning and uh, the middle of the 1960s. Uh, we, even if you may not remember that series uh, today, uh, there had been a lot of uh, very well-known uh, teams and uh, drivers uh, active. Not surprisingly, Bruce uh, McLaren uh, being at home 
and, uh, and had the opportunity to drive. But also we had uh, winning drivers as Jim Clark and uh, Jackie Stewart. We had uh, Chris Emmon, which we also see here on uh, the photo driving a modified uh, Ferrari. Uh, I'm not sure if I mentioned it in that episode. Uh, uh, he was driving practically a Ferrari, but it was labeled as uh, Dino, which uh, had been uh, as a daughter company of Ferrari, which specialized on the smaller cars, normally using six-cylinder engine. And in this case, you see here, they are using the Ferrari car, but uh, with the small six-cylinder Dino engine. And for marketing reasons, they're not called it Ferrari, but Dino 246, even if it was, of course, based on the Ferrari 246, which was driven in the Formula One season. Mm -hmm. Looking at this, uh, at the table, if you're watching us on YouTube, you can see that Asmon series. Uh, well, yeah. I definitely remember reading a lot about Chevrolet and uh, I mean, uh, yeah. they, had a, they had great success in this uh, series in the 70s. Um, and that's kind of what you see on the screen now. And of course, uh, previously in the 60s, you can see it was Lotus. Yeah. You can say it was lot, mostly Lotus. Uh, and then it was kind of mostly Chevrolet in different combinations, um, either as a contributor or as a standalone company. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense as the US manufacturers had been more present on the Australian continent than the European ones. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the movie Grand Prix. Yes, we still have uh, it on our to-do list uh, to finally see it. Uh, as mentioned in earlier episodes, uh, quite interesting uh, that uh, Hollywood decided to do a, a movie on Formula One and maybe not on NASCAR or the IndyCar series, which have been much more uh, popular uh, at that time. But so I guess it was a mixture between uh, international lifestyle and uh, fast cars, something similar as the highly uh, popular James Bond movies at that time. Yes, yes, that's right. And uh, there were um, a large number of well-known drivers in the film. Exactly. Uh, and uh, yeah, so it was... Um, um, it was commercially, it was a very successful film and probably, you know, just, uh, you know, when we ask the question why, <laughs> why American uh, movie industry decided to do it is, of course, because uh, they understood that they probably would be able to sell it not only to Indianapolis uh, fans and the U.S. Grand Prix fans, but also to a European audience and in fact uh, they made the right decision because the film was financially was a great success. Exactly and it included a lot of uh, very famous Hollywood stars. Yeah, the uh, one... which took the lead role as we see him here on the poster. Yeah and uh, because it was such a challenging uh, film to to shoot it also received the three Academy Awards for various technical in various technical categories. Uh, so yeah, in a sense, it was uh, it was a great success, and uh, 
Uh, I mean, I only saw the trailer. Uh, trailer looks good. <laughs> very looks uh, very engaging. So I guess it's uh, probably technically was very difficult to capture uh, the races, and uh, certainly uh, uh, I'm looking forward to watching it. Yeah, and we, I mean we have to keep in mind that at that time, 1960s, the the cameras had not been small as we practically today. I think uh, each for Formula One cars had several little cameras everywhere. By that time, you had to put uh, a movie camera uh, at the back of the car or at the the front of a car. So it was uh, quite uh, challenging. Well, I think uh, at the moment, all, 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 almost everything is CGI, uh, and the races are shot digitally. And uh, I think the one of the last the very famous films. I mean, I'm not sure that that's the last film, but one. Uh, one of the last uh, famous uh, films where the, the sort of uh, uh, races or car driving in any case was shot uh, uh, the old-fashioned way is of course uh, um, a death proof by uh, by Tarantino where you know you could see how yeah. difficult how difficult it was because you could see the real stuntman driving with a person that is kind of driving on top of the car in front of the driver so yeah. you can't really see anything in this in this case you just can see the person that that is in front of you so definitely that was very challenging and uh, um, you know it, it is it is a rare it is a rare scene now when uh, these types of things are shot live, uh, shot, you know, in old-fashioned way. Yeah. So normally it's all sort of, uh, you have a green screen and you have a digital, uh, yeah, digital means, uh, 3D models and, uh, you know, looks, uh, it all doesn't look real anymore. But back in the day, they shot everything. Uh, well, the stunts were real stunts. They were not uh, three, 3D uh, digital prints of people and models of how things could you know break and uh, explode or whatever yeah i remember there some documentaries about the making of uh, the famous le mans movie where you see the cars with the movie cameras and how they really did it yeah so it wasn't easy definitely so that's so that makes it uh, even more sort of desirable to watch pretty much probably like uh, um, you know the old sort of uh, 70s uh, films about uh, racing or motor sport or generally driving and cool cars like vanishing point and yes. those types of things Okay, so again, one of the rare pictures uh, of Lorenzo Bandini, a close, a close shot of him again uh, in, inside the car, but at least it's a portrait. And uh, yeah, with that, we're going to his famous quotes. Exactly. So uh, I didn't, uh, we didn't found uh, a lot. And uh, so just uh, this uh, three, this uh, three. I think it's all a destiny in life. It's not just someone who runs in a car. If one has to die at some point, uh, if it's destiny that has to die that day, he dies whether he goes running in a car or does not running in a car. So uh, similar to uh, Alberto Ascari, for example, uh, he believed in uh, his uh, destiny. And uh, if you compare it, uh, let's say, uh, to what we dis uh, discussed, um, uh, about uh, Monaco, 
quite uh, interesting to see. The second quote, uh, fear never settles. Uh, understandable uh, as a driver. I mean, if you would uh, lose your, if you lose the, your fear, you lose the respect uh, uh, to the car and to the situation. And I think really it is, would be very dangerous if you, the fear would uh, settle because it means automatically that you uh, lose respect to the situation and um, then uh, that you do uh, admit uh, to higher risks than you really should do. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was just going to, going to say to this, uh, to, to comment on that, that, uh, you know, the, uh, when we saw sort of a big, uh, uh, really big accidents and big risk taking, it was uh, very often from drivers who thought that nothing could happen yeah. to them while they are in the car. Um, and also, it kind of reminds me some, uh, I was just watching with, with my son, we watch a lot of videos about astronauts. Uh, and uh, there was a really cool series that they shot. Uh, I think it was some maybe in the 2018, 2019, it was one year in space, it's called. And it kind of follows uh, astronauts around the space station uh, throughout yeah. the year. So there are several episodes. And um, they interviewed uh, these astronauts um, about uh, the outer space. And they said, well, when you go into outer space and generally, are you scared? Like, are you afraid that something could go wrong? And uh, all of them said, yes, of course. And it's a good thing to be afraid yes. because yeah. when you stop being afraid, that's when <laughs> stuff happens. Yeah. So, so and it's kind of like that out of space for Formula One as well, because the speeds are high and you have to be very careful. And, you, you know, if you lose your concentration for one second, it can have deadly uh, consequences, not only for you, but for other people around you. And uh, in, in in that sense, yeah, it's it's a healthy thing to be, uh, you know, to be aware of the situation, not necessarily to be afraid. But uh, yeah, I think what he means is that, you know, you should always uh, understand that this is risky, right? So you should yeah. always have the understanding that it is a, a risky and uncertain, uncertain environment where you operate. Yeah. And the last uh, quote we found, uh, you only look at the deaths that happen in motor racing, then we abolish the planes, we abolish the cars, we abolish everyone, we are closed in the house, so we are sure that we do not die and we return as once with the donkey. The donkey and the horses, and so it's sure that we are less dead. So here he uh, un underlined the importance um, of uh, taking risk uh, to progress, uh, in life, but I think also in uh, society, and uh, and uh, and this is something uh, related to the idea that uh, a lot of important um, developments, uh, which we found later in our streetcars, came first uh, from the racetrack. So well, I mean, uh, it just uh, you know, I think it just speaks to this fact that. Um, you know, if you are if if you are afraid of taking risk, you should just uh, yes. be at home. But then you do not develop. You will you exactly. will always be where you are, and uh, 
you know, to that I only can add uh, the following that, you know, we see a lot even in the current situation, right, with COVID, uh, that most policies are about scaring people. They just say, like, if you don't do that, you're going to die horribly or something like this. But no one explains to you what is the probability of dying in different situations if you do A, B, C, D, and yeah. how, you know, how exactly risky something is. And um, in that sense, I think, uh, you know, if we maybe spend more time explaining the risk to people mm -hmm. rather than just uh, trying to kind of make, make them afraid, uh, we would have been a lot better off. And I think as a Formula One driver, like to me, when, you know, when we interviewed uh, in my lab, we interviewed some drivers, uh, competitive drivers, so we didn't interview Formula One, obviously, because they are celebrities and hard to get, hard to, get to, but uh, generally we interviewed uh, competitive drivers a lot, and most of them do not consider this to be a, um, you know, high risk uh, uh, occupation. They just say, well, it's my job, you know, it's my job yeah. to drive. So I need to be, of course, aware of the situation and understand who is around me and uh, what is the situation like and what decision I need to take. So the concentration is extremely important, but it's, uh, it's necessary to take risk. Otherwise, you know, you will not... Uh, yeah, you will not proceed, you will not develop, and uh, yeah. you will not develop as a driver, and you will not win, which is important. Exactly, and um, this is not only uh, uh, risking your life or your health, I mean, uh, also it could be the risk uh, to change your job, for example, or you change your position, you're not sure, uh, am I good in this new, uh, in this new uh, job? Um, or a position, but I mean, if you n never try, you never know, and uh, you cannot develop, of course. Yeah, so we've, uh, um, again, we've discussed quite a lot about, uh, yeah. about uh, Lorenzo Bandini in general. Um, in terms of, yeah, we haven't actually talked much about character, um, and this is practically due to sort of general lack of information about mm -hmm. him. But you can, you can kind of uh, tell from the biography that we just uh, sort of uh, uh, discussed uh, during this episode that he was definitely a, strong, a very strong personality because he, uh, like I explained uh, at the beginning, uh, had to provide for his family from a very young age. He took opportunities uh, when they came, and, and uh, he was, of course, uh, um, I mean, he, he, he seemed to be very, very nice, weighted, calm person uh, that at the same time was loved by a great number of people. And considering yeah. that he was, he was loved by so many people, uh, you know, he was really uh, this... Uh, um, a role model for for many sort of Italian uh, uh, Italian fans, and uh, also this uh, the fact that he um, he had this really uh, great and weighted approach uh, uh, to to racing. He also yeah. was very efficient in. Uh, in endurance races. So, and this is something that uh, he shared with other 
um, uh, drivers with, uh, I guess, similar approach, like, for example, Phil Hill, right? We discussed Phil yeah. Hill. So, but of course, like when we discussed Phil Hill, we were talking about his prof professionalism, right? So he's like this expert driver, professional yeah. driver. I mean, here we see basically a person who, um, in a sense, uh, was um, uh, probably didn't uh, show that much passion but at yeah. the same time uh, did really put his heart into this yeah. this work and uh, that was felt obviously by the fan base um so in that sense i think that's uh, um to me that's kind of the summary of the character exactly I and if you agree <laughs> i agree and if you uh, see the, the few information we have uh, he seemed to be a very uh, down to earth person uh he i mean he um he entered in this workshop at a long relation uh, uh, with uh, the owner. He uh, married uh, quite early. He lived uh, quite uh, near uh, Ferrari in the Emilia Romana. And uh, so even if he had uh, many fans, if he, even if he drove for the country's most famous um, uh, race team, I mean, uh, he really stay. He not uh, seen that uh, that this changed his uh, character. He he not became uh, the big uh, playboy, being in high society, but really seemed to be somebody near uh, to the normal uh, people around him. I think this was also one of the reasons why he was so much uh, beloved. Uh, that's right. So I mean. Um... Notable wins, uh, well, of course, uh, we have to mention Austria uh, and uh, we have to mention, uh, well, probably, I mean, we have to probably go with non-Formula One uh, performance as well yes. and, uh, you know, Le Mans, Le Mans and other races that we've uh, um uh, we've discussed uh, in this episode but you no know, yeah in formula one definitely austria that's that stands out um notable accidents well we have to go with his uh, uh, with his death effectively in 1967 yeah. and uh, yeah i mean in terms of racing strategy um, again, uh, this uh, very weighted approach to risk and trying to anticipate things is something I think that distinguished him from uh, from uh, from the rest and uh, made him especially um, ef ef efficient in endurance racing, because probably this is uh, I mean as we saw this this is probably not the best strategy for Formula One racing where i mean it seems like people who are more passionate to do better uh, but uh, at, at the same time made him extremely good at uh, races like Le Mans uh, and other long distance uh, long time endurance uh, um, motor racing motor racing yeah i agreed uh, with you and he was a as he was a calm player and as you all as you described he was also a very good uh, team player And then we have our last point, uh, leg legacy. Uh, he was uh, this uh, beloved uh, person, so let's say no uh, surprise that uh, they uh, founded um, a trophy uh, named uh, after him. And uh, it's an annual award uh, which goes uh, to a driver or to a team 
not only related to the success, but also uh, how they achieved the success. So being, uh, let's say, a good uh, positive uh, sportsman and ambassador for motorsports, uh, for example. Uh, again, if you are on YouTube, uh, you see here uh, a photo of the 2018 winner, Valtteri Bottas. And also it, uh, you can see uh, quite nicely here the trophy, which is a ceramic replica of his Ferrari 312. So quite, uh, I think, nice uh, trophy, a little bit uh, different uh, than the normal trophies uh, which you normally get. Yeah, I just also wanted to to say about the you know this uh, overwhelming love and support that he enjoyed. I think, uh, of course, it is partly due to the talent, um, but also I think one of the things that stands out, and again from the things that I read about him, is that you know um, as we discussed, he was like a child of war, and he came from a very simple background. And he was a little bit like, you know, the, the guy next door. And when people looked at him, uh, they thought, okay, you know, like, yeah, we've had all these uh, iconic figures in the sport before who probably had, uh, uh, you know, f f generations uh, of their family in racing and all, all that, or had gentlemen drivers, or had, uh, you know, really rich guys. Uh, but I mean, this was a guy who was really kind of coming from, he was very simple. He was just, just like everybody else, right? Yeah. He was just like everybody else and at the same time he was unique and that kind of was very close to the psychology of many people who thought okay well if this guy if this guy can do it i can do it as well right so he's one of us in a sense so and that that kind of added to this uh, massive uh, popularity in italy and uh, the feeling uh, that people had that he was basically just uh, just like any other guy right and that made him very very uh, approachable and very very sort of uh, loved by 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 the public exactly he was like everybody else and uh, thanks to his character he not forget uh, forgot that he's uh, like uh, everybody else so so they, they, uh, he and, uh, let's say, the fans never lost uh, the close contact. And uh, also due to this, uh, they named this uh, trophy um, for him, which is uh, a quite uh, interesting uh, one and uh, quite uh, important uh, in the motorsport, in the world of motorsports. Here, a panel of 12 judges uh, composed of former motor racing journalists and also Formula One team members determines the recipient of the award. And there's an annual uh, ceremony in his uh, hometown, uh, Briscala in Emilia Romana, uh, where, uh, where they give uh, the trophy to one of the drivers or team principals or the team uh, itself. In the last years, uh, this uh, event also was um, organized uh, juntos con the, um, with the uh, Minardi days. I think Minardi is another very beloved uh, name in Italy, this uh, little uh, Formula One team. And uh, we will come to this, I'm sure, in some later uh, episode where we speak about the 1990s. Yeah, I mean, um, it would be cool to, to, to know the criteria, how exactly they select uh, uh, 
the winner because obviously i mean uh, uh, yes. This is not based on performance. So if you just no, uh, won uh, the season, uh, you it doesn't it doesn't actually count. But it, it is uh, in in the sense based on the opinion of uh, experts, and uh, so in a sense it's the expertise it's expertise prize, uh, and uh, the. I'm sure there is a set of criteria that they apply, so it would be actually cool to know how exactly, you know, what exactly they are considering as important contribution. I guess to as many competitions, uh, it is a rather subjective uh, yes. selection, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, it is great to have, uh, you know, something else apart from the usual, you know, whatever this uh, athlete of the year awards and other things that are quite, uh, I think, sometimes quite boring, like whoever, <laughs> you know, whoever achieved a, a win uh, gets the prize. So in this case, it's a little bit more intriguing and uh, you can get uh, people who are, you know, for example, qu quite, uh, uh, so who are good uh, with team spirit or who are just uh, good in consistency or, you know, in some, in some other aspect of um, uh, of motorsport and they they are those uh, sort of unsung heroes uh, mm -hmm. of the sport who get who get this award yeah, in a sense in many ways that continues the legacy right of, of lorenzo bandini in yeah and uh, I, th I think interesting uh, it seems that they care try to keep it uh, near to the people so it's not uh, in a closed ceremony uh, hall but uh, here we see for example in the photo we see Bottas in the center of this little Italian city, you see the Formula One fans uh, who can uh, be near to their uh, drivers. So uh, I think it keeps up somehow uh, his uh, spirit. And uh, um, important also for the prize, you can only receive it uh, once. So you cannot win it uh, twice. So we cannot have uh, Lewis Hamilton winning it seven times in a row or whatever. Yes, so which which also makes it uh, interesting. And, uh, yeah, yeah, quite a long list of uh, people <laughs> here with the trophy, and uh, yeah, exactly. And maybe a little bit focus uh, with uh, Italians. We had uh, the first winner was uh, Ivan Capelli in 192. Then we had David Coulthard, Jacques Villeneuve. Uh, we have uh, Luca Cordero de Montesimolo. Uh, Giancarlo Fisichella, Alexander Wurz, Jano Trulli, Jensen Button, Juan Pablo Montoya, Michael Schumacher, Kimi Raikön, Fernando uh, Alonso, Mark Weber, Felipe Massa, Robert uh, Kubitschka, Seb Sebastian Vettel, Lewis Hamilton, Nico Rosberg, Bruno Senna, Piero Ferrari, Daniel Ricciardo. Then uh, in 2015, the first time we have a team, it went to the Mercedes uh, F1 team. 2016, it went to Max Verstappen, then uh, Scuderia Ferrari, Valtteri Bottas as seen, and the latest winner was uh, the Alfa Romeo uh, pilot uh, driver Antonio Gironazzi. Yeah, that's right. So I wonder about the 2020. So <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's tricky because you you have to find uh, someone or some team. Uh, but also somebody who not uh, received it uh, before. Yes, and uh, now we are also in uh, the corona situation, so I'm just wondering how exactly they handled this or will handle it this year. 
So I don't know whether it was already awarded this year or not, but uh, it would be interesting to see. I guess they awarded probably at the beginning of next year, right? Uh, after the after the year end. Yeah, also, uh, you see, you see uh, in the beginning, uh, it's not uh, automatically an annual uh, reward. In the beginning, they did it the mm. first time in 1992, and then they waited three years for whatever reason uh, to give it to David Coulthard. So maybe they just uh, skip it and say 2020. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> Who knows? Interesting. Well, they consistently have given it out every year now, so maybe we will see someone. It's interesting. Yeah. Who I, I, I assume so, but uh, let's see. Okay, that's all we have prepared for Lorenzo Bandini. Yeah, so quite a, um, quite a memorable character. Definitely memorable in uh, too many Italian fans. And uh, yeah, really this uh, guy next door. I mean, for some reason we didn't have a, a uh, didn't quite discuss the legacy, but uh, yeah, I guess he was this uh, uh, guy next door who made it in the sport, in, in yep. Formula One sport. So on that happy note, <laughs> and uh, the message that anybody can make it with enough uh, effort yeah. and hard Not work. Yeah, exactly. So with enough effort and hard work. Uh, yeah. So we leave you with this thought and we will see you next time. And as usual, you can find us on uh, uh, various uh, platforms uh, as a podcast and on YouTube uh, as, a, as a main series so um uh, video series and uh, yeah so we hope to see you next time and uh, have a nice day wherever you are have a nice day nice morning nice afternoon evening whenever you see or listen to us <laughs>